Good evening, everyone. Well, welcome uh, to the second of three lectures uh, given by Professor Mark Knoll of the University of Notre Dame. Uh, to those of you who were here last night, welcome back. Um, and to those uh, who are here for the first time, uh, thank you very much for coming. Uh, these are uh, the Princeton Public Lectures. And my name is Fred Appel. I am uh, the religion editor at Princeton University Press. And Princeton University Press is a proud co-sponsor of uh, these Princeton Public Lectures. And uh, I, I want to take the opportunity to thank the faculty committee of the uh, Princeton Public Lectures and their great administrator, Sue Jennings, for doing all the logistical work and helping to make this, um, this lecture possible. Uh, these lectures are, in fact, called uh, the Stafford Little uh, Lectures. And, and I've been asked to say just a few words about the Stafford uh, Little Lectures. Uh, it was a lecture series that was uh, founded back in 1899 with a small bequest of $10,000 by a Princeton alum named Henry Stanford Little of the class of 1844. And uh, the lecture series has been associated with quite a few very well-known people, uh, starting off with former President Grover Cleveland and uh, other former uh, Stafford Little lecturers have included Theodore Roosevelt, who spoke on national strength and international duty, and Albert Einstein on the meaning of relativity, and uh, people like Thurgood Marshall, the constitutional rights of the Negro, uh, George Kennan, and more recently, uh, Paul Muldoon and uh, the Stanford historian George Fredrickson, Michael Graves and Ariel Dorfman. And we're very pleased to have uh, Mark Knoll as our current Stafford Little lecturer. To introduce Mark, um, I would like to introduce uh, Professor Lee Schmidt of the Department of Religion at Princeton University. Uh, Pro Professor Schmidt is the chair of the Department of Religion, and his field, uh, broadly speaking, is in the area of American religious history. Uh, he is author, uh, among other books, of uh, Hearing Things, Religion, Illusion, and the American Enlightenment, uh, a book called Consumer Rights, The Buying and Selling of American Holidays, and Professor Schmidt's most recent book is entitled Restless Souls, The Making of American Spirituality, published by Harper San Francisco just earlier this year. So I'd like Lee Schmidt to come up and introduce our lecturer tonight. Last night, in his appropriately sweeping introduction, Robert Wuth now drew our attention to three facets of Mark Knoll's considerable achievements. First, his role as an academic entrepreneur in forwarding research programs and centers in the study of evangelicalism and the wider history of Christianity. Second, his place as an accomplished scholar in the publication of such benchmark works as America's God from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln, and third, his standing as a public intellectual, serving as a prominent evangelical critic of his own traditions, anti-intellectualism, and political misadventures. In having a lecturer's multiple attainments outlined so well before his first lecture, 
one would think there would be little left to say for subsequent introducers except bare repetition, however adroitly that redundancy might be disguised. That would likely be the case for almost all the rest of us who labor as historians of American religion. But it is certainly not the case for Mark Knoll, Francis A. McEnany, professor of history at the University of Notre Dame, a scholar of such productivity and range that we hardly need to repeat ourselves tonight, tomorrow night, next week, next month, I think we could keep going a very long time before we got to the bottom of Professor Knoll's vita. So here are two more elements of Mark's work as a historian that I find admirable and compelling on top of the three roles that we heard about last night. First, though Mark is known especially as an intellectual historian, he demonstrates in his scholarly work a remarkable feel for evangelicalism as a lived and living tradition. This side of his work is well demonstrated by the careful attention he has paid over the years to hymnody, to the indispensable role of congregational singing and evangelical life. That element of his research has been foregrounded in a new collection just out in 2006 that he co-edited with Edith Blumhofer entitled Sing Them Over Again to Me, Hymns and Hymn Books in America. While he has tirelessly explored evangelicalism as a theological and exegetical tradition, he also reminds us that this is a popular faith that has long sung itself into being. Second, while many of us ponder what global perspectives on American history will come to look like in the years ahead, Mark has already taken the world as his historical parish. Perhaps this is a distinct quality of the open evangelical mind, but Mark consistently sees American religious history in grand comparative perspective. Canada, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Mexico, whether on topics of religion and political revolution, church-state relations, or Protestant moral philosophy, Mark consistently captures the big transatlantic picture. And he regularly does this with a stunning combination of analytic reach and precision, a combination very much on display in last night's performance. Tonight, then, I renew our welcome Professor Knoll and thank him in advance for his second of three lectures on race, religion, and American politics from Nat Turner to George W. Bush. Professor Knoll. That was a very uh, kind introduction and Lee Schmidt had kept talking for another 15 or 20 minutes, I'd maybe be half convinced that I belong in the same lecture series as the worthies that Fred Appel mentioned tonight. The topic of this evening's lecture is the church's redemption and Jim Crow. Last night, I suggested that the political conflicts that led to the Civil War turned upon the question of slavery 
and that in American experience, the question of slavery was always an intensely religious issue. I also suggested that the kind of religion energizing debates over slavery was broadly Calvinistic, especially in its direct movement from principles to public action as a normal procedure. In addition, I claim that religious fixation on slavery during the antebellum and Civil War periods left religious consideration of race confused. And I asserted, on the basis of very little evidence, that broad patterns emblazoned on the national psyche by the crisis of the Civil War, which I am interpreting as a religious crisis and a racial crisis, as well as a political crisis, have shaped American politics to the present. Tonight, I hope to carry the story of race, religion, and politics from the immediate postbellum years into the early 20th century. As I do so, I'm pleased to confess my debt to a host of historians who have labored diligently to rescue post-bellum American history from romantic myth-making on the one side and cynical debunking on the other. For subjects on uh, religion and American life up to about 1865, I can rely a little bit on my own research into relevant primary sources. After that, I'm an unabashed and unapologetic synthesizer. But as such, I need to express tonight overwhelming gratitude uh, to, among others, Daniel Stoll, Paul Harvey, Stephen Hahn, John Hope Franklin, Wayne Flint, Edward Bloom, David Blight, James Bennett, and Thabiti Anawabali. But also I've got to extend a, an apology in advance where I've got their works wrong. The lecture tonight is making two historical points, one fairly straightforward, the other more complex. Both have to do with the enduring effects of the Civil War. The first concerns the new chapter in African-American history that was opened by the war and the constitutional amendments that followed. The second concerns the broad range of consequences that occurred when, as a result of the Civil War, the evangelical religion of the antebellum period was unseated as a dominant force in national political life. In my judgment, the Civil War and its aftermath defined frameworks for political religious interaction, religious racial interaction, and political racial interaction that remained largely in place until after World War II when the modern civil rights movement began to reconfigure the course of American political history. The long-term consequences flowing from the Civil War provide, in other words, a thick web of continuities from the age of Nat Turner to the age of George W. Bush. And so, first, a new era in African-American history. The effect of the Civil War that most directly influenced the nexus of race, religion, and politics was the opening of space for African-Americans to create, direct, and manage their own churches and other institutions. While the full uh, political effects of that opening would not be apparent until deep into the 20th century, the energy displayed by blacks in the decades after the Civil War began a process that would, decades later, bring about a religious-inspired transformation of American public life. Organizationally, the Civil War was immensely significant for the opportunity it afforded African Americans to establish their own churches and educational activities and also to create a literature for themselves. Church and school provided the foundation for the beginnings of a measure of African American control over African American destiny. 
Even before the war was over, steps were being taken within previously existing northern denominations like the African Methodist Episcopal Church to expand into a liberated black south. As soon as the war was over, another kind of ecclesiastical organizing took place as former slaves began to establish new denominations. In 1865, the Colored Primitive Baptists of America. In 1866, a state convention for Baptists in North Carolina. In 1869, the Colored Cumberland Presbyterian Church. In 1870, the first general convention of the Colored Methodist Episcopal Church that pulled together the work of five state conventions. Links among the Baptist state conventions developed later, but within a generation by 1895, the National Baptist Convention was up and running. Also before the end of the century, black holiness churches organized themselves as the Church of God in Christ under the leadership of C.H. Mason and C.P. Jones. Cooperation of Mason and Jones did not last long, but when they divided a few years later, the result was a powerful black Pentecostal denomination under Mason, the Church of God in Christ, and a major holiness denomination under Jones, the Church of, God, uh, Church of uh, Christ Holiness. Stride for stride, alongside the emergence of black denominations came black educational institutions. At first, with the extensive help of the Freedmen's Bureau and of white Protestants from the northern denominations, but then under their own impetus, former slaves patronized, founded, and expanded schools at every level, from night classes for literacy to colleges and universities. In the early years after the war, the newly organized or expanded churches and the educational institutions joined the Republican Party in providing scope for public black leadership. As Reconstruction was overtaken by Southern white regimes, that scope shrunk back to only the churches and schools. But even as white repression drove blacks back into the institutions they had themselves created and controlled, African-American publishing continued to expand. Within a generation after the war, the denominations were sponsoring a wide range of religious publications, but they were joined by other purveyors of books and periodicals that were exploring national politics, advancing strategies for self-help, and offering consideration of Africa and the possibility of emigration, among many other topics. As numerous scholars have now pointed out, broader developments in the nation obscured the significance of these African-American institutions. The retreat from Reconstruction, the unlynching of lynch law terrorism, the general lack of concern for black civil rights in the North, and the imposition in the South of Jim Crow laws to quash black political participation seemed to neuter the nation's African-American population. The cri de cour in 1900 of black novelist and social critic Pauline Hopkins reflected her dismay at the contemporary situation. We thought, she wrote, that with the abolishment of slavery, the black man's destiny would be accomplished. Yet today, a condition of affairs confronts us that abolitionists never foresaw. The systematic destruction of the Negro by every device which the fury of enlightened malevolence can invent. This new birth of the black race is a mighty agony. God help us in our struggle for liberty and manhood. Yet Hopkins' testimony, contained as it was in a novel written by an African-American for a literate African-American audience, showed, as did the uh, lectures I quoted from 1900 from Francis Grimke last night, 
showed that beneath the level of national consciousness, black institutions and black spokespeople were now sustaining a lively black discourse for an expanding black audience. External conditions prevented that discourse from affecting the body politic as a whole, but only a short space of time, but in only a short space of time, it had been born, it had come into its own, and it was at least surviving. A key element in the emergence of black civil society was the strengthening of a distinctly African-American religious voice. In point of fact, there never was a single African-American voice, but rather a distinctly African-American force field in which different religious expressions arose, merged, competed against each other, and provided an unusual measure of fruitful hybridization. This force field could be traced back into the early national and antebellum periods when African Americans, both slave and free, began to internalize Christian convictions and practices. The Christian elements that blacks accepted were usually taken over from evangelical revivalism. Whether through the work of early denominational leaders like Richard Allen of the AME, or the Presbyterian Henry Highland Garnett, or in the various manifestations of slave religion, black Christian expression almost always represented more than simply a duplication of white religion. The difference after the Civil War was that the journey of ethical, moral, and theological reflection was much more clearly a journey of self-determination. It was now out from under white control and free to develop its own trajectories. For a history of religious thought narrowly considered, the black story from 1865 to about 1925 is one of increasing depth and diversification. For American history broadly considered, the story is again one of apparent national irrelevance during wilderness years of preparation for a future day of opportunity. Black religious thought in the generations after the Civil War moved on two levels, the realms of formal elite discourse and popular, often lay, practice. The formal realm of African-American religious thought embraced several not altogether harmonious elements. Most prominent in the years surrounding the Civil War was a strongly evangelical element advocated by effective leaders like Bishop Daniel Alexander Payne of the AME Church. Because Payne's evangelicalism closely resembled the era's prominent white Protestant teachings, he was regularly moved to warn against heathenish practices, as he called them, which he found among African Americans, like the ring shout with dancing, you said, and clapping of hands. Another widely embraced element in formal religious thought was Christian universalism, a theme that often emerged naturally in league with standard evangelical emphases. The Reverend William Christian, founder in 1889 of the Church of the Living God, Christian Workers for Fellowship, consistently preached that since Jesus had no earthly father, he was colorless and belonged to all people. The Reverend Elias Camp Morris, pioneering president of the National Baptist Association, joined Christian in asserting that the message of Christianity was for all people without differentiation everywhere. The commission, he wrote, which God gives is without race, color, or condition, but is that the gospel be preached to every creature. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not white sinners, not black sinners, not red sinners, but sinners. And I've got a long quotation from Francis Grimke from early in the 20th century that I won't read that says the same sort of thing. 
Other elements that contributed to formal religious thought, like a strongly black emphasis, drifted further from standard evangelical themes. Henry McNeil Turner, who became a bishop of the AME Church after extensive military and political experience, wrote famously in 1896 that God is a Negro, a claim meant to identify Christianity with outreach to subjugated populations. McNeil's disillusionment with the course of affairs in the United States led him to explore African colonization and to establish ties with black churches in South Africa. A strongly reformist element also shaped black religious thought, although reform could take many different shapes. Booker T. Washington, who promoted industrial vocational education, W.B. Du Bois, who advocated intellectual and social self-assertion at the highest intellectual level, Marcus Garvey, a more secular proponent of emigration, could be harsh critics of each other. But because they shared an eagerness to confront the forces that oppress black people, their ideas were easily put to use by individuals representing a wide range of religious views. By the early 20th century, formal religious thought by African Americans had reached a relatively sophisticated level in a relatively short period of time. Among the masses of believing blacks, however, it is likely that populist religious practice counted for more than formal intellectual effort. The strongly emotional and forthrightly physical practices that have been well described by Albert Rabiteau, Sylvia Fry, Betty Wood, and other scholars as marking antebellum black Christianity carried over broadly into the last decades of the 19th century. Religious life defined by immediate contact with the divine Bible knowledge keyed to miraculous interventions and self-sacrificing heroes, spirituals that rehearsed narratives of divine liberation, these and other well-established practices that had sustained African-American Christians through slavery continued to do so after emancipation. To this strong base of experiential religion, Pentecostal practices were added in many places by the start of the new century. William Seymour, a well-traveled holiness preacher who became the key promoter of the Azusa Street Pentecostal revivals of 1906, was a leader who, after internalizing the practices of slave religion, had gone on to define a spiritual progression of justification, sanctification, and then baptism in the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. His influence on fellow African Americans may not have been as great as it was in the Christian world at large, but he was still an important bridge from 19th century black spiritual practices to Pentecostal expressions of the 20th century. To Seymour's explicitly Christian influence should also be added the broad popular attention accorded to Father Divine and Bishop Charles Manuel Sweet Daddy Grace from the mid-teens of the 20th century. The peace mission of Father Divine and the United House of Prayer for All People of Sweet Daddy Grace were never accepted as fully orthodox Christian expressions, but their emphasis on multiracial worship and the ease with which they crossed the color line during a period of heightened race consciousness made them important promoters for a strongly integrationist element in popular black religion. The mixture that came from these different currents was not a cohesive system. It was rather a potent brew of lively ingredients that had the potential of boiling over in any number of directions. Well into the 20th century, the development of these black religious ideas seemed of little consequence for the populace in general. After World War II, 
their relevance for broader purposes became stunningly evident and with a vengeance. And I go on to talk here about the, uh, the, the chronological parallel that can be drawn between what happened in white Protestant thinking from the age of the uh, American Revolution to the Civil War and black religious thinking from 1865 to about 1945 to 1950. It's roughly the same period of time in which there's a, there's a transition from beginning mobilization, consolidation, and then political public influence. Let me turn now to the second uh, major feature of, of what happened after the Civil War. Where I think uh, we can say that there was a new era for race, religion, and American politics. For the longer history I'm tracing, the Civil War was as important for religion as it was for national politics. The evangelical Protestantism that had been such a force in the nation as a whole before the war certainly survived with considerable strength thereafter. But the era when evangelical priorities also dictated national priorities was over. When the Civil War unseated evangelical Protestantism as a dominant force in national political life, a wide range of consequences followed. Now the first of these. To grasp the tectonics at work, it's useful to attempt a rough schematization of American history in terms of the major underlying supports for the United States experiment in Republican democracy. In his farewell address, George Washington had provided a memorable statement of the conviction that religion was an indispensable prop for Republican government. He wrote or said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Tis substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. A comparably propitious security for the Republic was proposed by Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, who, who held that a healthy nation would result from leaving self-sufficient white working men alone to cultivate freely opportunities for free labor and free trade. And for the first generations of national history, religious voluntarism along with free labor, free trade, did in fact undergird a remarkable flourishing of American democratic society. Slavery and sectional controversy, however, created a problem that could not be solved by either voluntary religion or free markets. The solution, rather, was found in an active central government with far more authority than even Alexander Hamilton or the most ambitious Whigs had ever envisioned. But with the retreat from Reconstruction in the 1870s, market forces, largely untrammeled by religious influence, came to dominate the American polity. To be sure, by the end of Reconstruction, there were a lot of proposals for uh, mobilizing the government, and a few of those eventually snuck through, like the income tax, and, and, and finally, uh, just after the end of uh, World War II, the 18th Amendment to uh, decree prohibition for the whole country, that was an amendment that also received the, the united support of Protestant reforming agencies at a time when otherwise the Protestant world was busy dividing white, black, modernist, fundamentalist, academic, populist. Um, but compared to either the Civil War era or the period from the uh, Great Depression onward, 
The years from roughly 1876 to 1932 witnessed a relatively ineffective national government and a diffused rather than concentrated religious influence on national affairs. The federal government moved back into the center of the picture with the New Deal, but not until after World War II did religion once again gain a measure of the national prominence it had exercised in the decades before the Civil War. But once it did arise, religion was a fractured presence, driving public life in contradictory directions, even though the two strongest national religious forces, as expressed in the Civil Rights Movement and then the New Religious Right, were both descended from the evangelical religion that had been such a dominant force in the antebellum period. Next point. Considered from a military standpoint, the exigencies of warfare and reconstruction explain why, from 1860 to 1876, central government became the dominant political force in the nation as a whole. But from a religious standpoint, there is more to be said. Evangelical Protestantism lost out in national political influence because while it had the strength to help divide the country over slavery, it did not have the intellectual or political strength to resolve the issue of slavery. Last night, I tried to suggest that American national culture was built in substantial part by evangelicals who exploited voluntary and democratic means to internalize the message of scripture and to spread that message as a redeeming and organizing force in the land. Yet in the run-up to the Civil War, democratic and voluntary uses of the Bible created an impasse. The means that evangelicals had employed to exert their authority in the culture failed before the unbridgeable chasm of opinion about what the Bible actually taught concerning slavery. Only because religious belief and practice had done so much to create the nation that went to war did that conflict result in such a great alteration in the national influence of religious belief and practice after the war. In the wake of the conflict, two great problems confronted the churches. One was the enduring reality of racism, which displayed its continuing force almost as virulently through the mob and the rope as it had in the chain and the lash. The other great problem was the expansion of consumer capitalism, where unprecedented opportunities vied with situations of large-scale alienation and new depths of poverty. For religion to have addressed these two problems constructively, Americans, America's believers needed the kind of intellectual and institutional vigor that evangelical Protestants had brought to bear on so many tasks in the generation between the Revolution and the Civil War. But the Civil War was won and slavery was abolished not by religious agency, but by an unprecedented expansion of central government authority and by a hitherto unimaginable degree of industrial mobilization. If the war freed the slaves and gave African Americans a constitutional claim to citizenship, it did not provide the moral energy required for rooting equal rights in the subsoil of American society or for planting equal opportunity throughout the land. If the war showed what could be accomplished through massive industrial mobilization, it did not offer clear moral guidance as to how that mobilization could be put to use for the good of all citizens. The evangelical Protestant traditions that had done so much to shape society before the war were not rendered powerless in the wake of the war, but they were now much more deeply divided than ever before. And again, North versus South, Black versus White, Populist versus Academic. 
The beliefs and practices that had been so prominent nationally in the antebellum period did, not remain did remain important for millions of individuals, but because these beliefs and practices had not been able to re resolve the issue of slavery, which tore the nation apart, they gave way to an, an, in national influence to the expansion of federal power and then the exercise of market forces that dominated the political landscape for the next two generations. And now point C. For the general practice of religion, the receding national authority of evangelical Protestants of British origin was a propitious development. When this formerly dominant family of denominations lost predominance, it opened space for other religious communities to flourish in specific localities and to be accepted as Americans. There were, of course, some evangelical Protestants in the post-Bellum uh, years. Josiah Strong is one who, who wanted to maintain Protestant dominance and even wanted to create a Protestant state. But there was never anything after the war like, say, the American Party of the mid-1950s that actually won state elections and sent a lot of people to Congress on a very explicitly anti-Catholic uh, political platform. What happened rather after the American Civil War was that in Isaiah Berlin's terms, negative, negative freedom, freedom to let people alone, won out over positive freedom, the freedom to do what you knew was right and to get it uh, done. So Protestants not of British origin, Roman Catholics, Jews, Mormons, Eastern Orthodox, free-thinking secularists, and a host of small religious bodies began to be genuinely at home in the land of the free. Significantly, and despite the desire of some in the evangelical denominations, the evangelical inability to dominate Catholics, Lutherans, Jews, and Mormons was mirrored in the white evangelical inability to dominate the black churches. Now, point D. With the relative decline of evangelical Protestantism as a national political force, the central government for a brief period became the dominant influence on national public life. During the war itself, the unprecedented demands of conflict pushed Northern Republicans reluctantly and Confederates of all stripes even more reluctantly to accept an ever-expanding power for the national state. After the end of conflict and after Congressional Republicans grabbed hold of the, of the process from President Andrew Johnson, the national government guided Reconstruction by putting troops on the ground in the South, by coordinating the efforts of Northern and Southern voluntary agencies, and by taxing the whole country to pay for this exercise of national authority. So long as central government retained the capacity to act nat nationally, it was conceivable that the removal of slavery accomplished by the 13th Amendment, 1865, could go forward to address the even more difficult task of guaranteeing civil rights to citizens of all races. The 14th Amendment of 1868 announced such a guarantee is applicable to all persons born in the United States, including former slaves. It boldly proclaimed that no state was to make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens. And it decreed that no state was to deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor denied to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. This is 1868. Shortly thereafter, the 15th Amendment of 1870 went even further to guarantee the right to vote for all male citizens regardless of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. 14th Amendment 
had even spelled out in considerable detail the extensive uh, uh, penalties that would fall on states when, in the language of the amendment, the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for president and vice president of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial officers of a state, or the members of the legislature thereof is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state or in any way abridged except for participation in rebellion or other crime. 1868. For a brief span of years, it seemed that a vigorous national government might therefore accomplish with the voluntary exertions of the informal establishment of antebellum evangelical Protestants had not been able to accomplish, which was to translate the Bible's message of universal dignity for all humanity into the functioning law of the land, especially as African Americans began to exercise the franchise and when a few African Americans were voted into statewide and national office, it seemed as if central government actions against racism might begin to match the effectiveness of central government actions against slavery. By the early 1870s, however, the emergence in the Republican Party of a liberal faction, meaning in 19th century uh, use of the term a small government faction, indicated a growing uneasiness about prosecuting Reconstruction vigorously. And then, of course, as you all know, it'll be on the final exam of this lecture series. Uh, in the election of 1876, the Democratic candidate Samuel Tilden won 3% more of the popular vote than Republican candidate Ruther B. Hayes, but in a, a deal, uh, Hayes won the White House, and the payoff was to remove the federal troops from the South. The national unwillingness to maintain support for an active central government opened the way once again for race and religion to act powerfully in concert with each other. The reasons for the failure of Reconstruction, with it the failure to move beyond the elimination of slavery to the guarantee of civil rights for all Americans, are well known. In general terms, full-scale support for Reconstruction necessitated an active central government far stronger than widespread Republican instincts could ever tolerate in fear of a large central government. More specifically, Southern white racism proved stronger than the federal defense of civil rights. But it was not just the South. The will of integrationists from all sections of the country was undermined either by new causes that drew attention away from race, by weariness in pursuing the very difficult goals of legal and social equality, by visions of spirituality that, display, that downplayed worldly involvement or by violence. The role of vigilante violence, terrorism, in winning for the white South a victory in peace that its armies could not gain in war has been the subject of a cascade of scholarship on lynching, on lynching and the other physical means used to disenfranchise blacks and restore control of Southern society to racist governments. In that literature, a prominent theme is the use of mob violence to defend the virtue of white women in the sanctity of the white Christian home against the depredations of black sexual assault. These violent extremes taken to defend white sexual purity may reflect the most irrational moment in all of American history, since the ubiquity of lighter-skinned African Americans testified continually and unmistakably to the multiplied generations of sexually predatory acts 
by white males upon black women. But the intense domestic focus of white concern also recalls a parallel situation from an earlier time. Some of you will have read the works of uh, Christopher Hill, who describes the emergence of a Puritan style of life following in the defeat of Puritan efforts in the 1580s and early 1590s to, uh, to reform the entire Church of England. The parallel here is that in the defeat, uh, in, in the aftermath of the defeat of the Civil War, uh, there were white uh, uh, concerns to uh, protect the only domain that was now left free from broader outside forces, which was the domestic sphere. The difference between the Puritan and the antebellum Southern experience is that the Puritan spirituality that was developed in the, in the wake of the failed Puritan effort to reform the entire Church of England led to a, a dynamic kind of Puritan spirituality that continues to affect wide areas of the world to this day. Whereas the Southern concern for domestic purity uh, had no particular impact elsewhere in the world after it had run its course. Along with the willingness to use extra-legal violence, a widespread willingness to use traditional evangelical religion and opposition to Reconstruction also played a very important part in bringing the exercise of central government authority to a halt. On the religious contribution, what, what was called at the time the redemption of the South, a number of authors have made outstanding contributions. What James Bennett, Edward Bloom, Gaines Foster, Paul Harvey, Rusty Hawkins, Donald Matthews, W. Scott Poole, Daniel Stowell, and others have demonstrated is that religion, North as well as South, played a very large part in bringing Reconstruction to a close and in restoring white racist regimes to power. The actions were usually passive, as pastors and church leaders stood by silently while the Ku Klux Klan, the Knights of the White Camellia, and other organized mobs menaced, assaulted, or murdered African Americans who were attempting to take up the opportunities guaranteed by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, or the whites who, however cautiously, supported their efforts. Occasionally, church leaders could be more active, as when John Ezell, a Baptist minister in Spartansburg County, South Carolina, joined the local Klan in mob actions against white and black Republicans, only to repent later before a court with the, admonition, er, the admission that he did not believe he was safe outside the Klan. From the North, the willingness of well-known public religious figures, like the evangelist Dwight Moody, the temperance advocate Francis Willard to sacrifice black civil rights to other religious goals made their own important contribution to the redemption of the South. Until the mid-90s, and despite a willingness to speak before black audiences, Moody segregated the crowds who came to his meetings. With Willard and many other prominent religious leaders in the North, Moody also placed a great deal more emphasis on sectional recon reconciliation than on the continued fight against racial discrimination. In this, they were reflecting a major consequence of the war between the states. Um, I mentioned last night that the war effort had encouraged views of providence that became fixated on the divine calling of the United States. The result in religious terms was what David Blight has described for the nation as a whole. North-South reconciliation trumped efforts to reform attitudes and practices in all regions of the country and left African Americans, even the hundreds of thousands who had fought in the Union Armed Forces, on their own in the face of local discrimination. 
think it can also be said that the, the brand of uh, Christianity that was promoted by uh, Dwight L. Moody, though it had very considerable strengths, and actually, since I'm sort of that religion myself, think that there's much good to be said for it, also suffered, however, in some of its emphases on otherworldly spirituality, predictive prophecy as opposed to prophecy about the present, uh, for example. Parts of the Protestant world that did retain an interest in social justice did not always include racial matters in those concerns. Notable social reformers who otherwise exerted unusual efforts at embodying biblical values in the reforms regularly turned aside from racial problems. William Jennings Bryan, who is, in my view, the era's most consistent political Christian, may have uh, had uh, hinted at the need to address racial injustice, but the hint was overwhelmed, or any desire to hint, by the need to maintain good relations with the Democratic power base in the South. Walter Rauschenbusch, the era's profoundest theologian of the social gospel, saw much in American society that needed the rebuke of Christian reform, but he was strangely unconcerned about race. From all sides of the well-established American Protestant world, in other words, came silence, complicity, or active assistance to the redemption of the South. Religious cooperation with the imposition of Jim Crow extended well beyond the Protestant world, however, and this uh, uh, fine study published by Princeton University Press, one of the sponsors for tonight's lecture, by James Bennett, shows how in the Catholic parishes of New Orleans, uh, a long-standing tri-racialism, black, creole, white, uh, gave way and was forced into a, a biracialism that reflected a growing uh, hardening of racial categories. In fact, in 1896, uh, a creole, Plessy, in the Plessy versus Ferguson case, uh, was, was, it was ratified that a creole could not sit in a white accommodation because you could have separate but equal accommodations. That same year, the Catholic uh, Church in New Orleans opened its first black-only parish to which Creoles were uh, constrained to attend. Um, the important point to be made about Reconstruction repeats what was true as well for the Civil War. Just as the depth and intensity of antagonism in that war had been a product and substantial part of religious convictions, so too did religion figure actively to propel the national retreat from federally sponsored reconstruction. The redemption of the South was, as the name suggests, a spiritual turning point as well as a political turning point. And I've, I've just got to stop and, and say that the, uh, the, the use of this term redemption was uh, uh, ironic in a way that almost no one could realize at the time because um, in 1760, the very first published work by an African-American, uh, by James Hammond, right? Jupiter Hammond, a slave in Long Island. The very, the very first work by an African-American used the term redemption in a different sense. Salvation comes by Jesus Christ alone, the only Son of God. Redemption now to everyone that loves his holy word. Well, the next point. It's important to be clear about the, what the fate of religion meant in the late 19th century United States. When the evangelical Protestant phalanx receded as a dominant force in national politics, it did not mean that religion as a whole went into decline. To the contrary, 
Religious energies may actually have been increasing during this period, but in diverse forms, pushing in uncoordinated directions. So this is a period when in many parts of the country the Roman Catholic Church is established with great strength. It's in this period of time when the Lutherans in the upper Midwest become the established church of western Minnesota and north and south Dakota. Mormons in Utah, Hispanics and uh, Catholics in the southwest, uh, and even some could speak of a Methodist hegemony. You don't get to use those two words in the same sentence too often. But a, a Methodist hegemony from Delaware to Kansas in the north of the south and the south of the north. But of course, the strongest regional concentration of a specific religious tradition was the former Confederate South. The Civil War that broke the national power of evangelical Protestant movements of British origin enabled these same movements to exert a new kind of power throughout the southern region of the country. As recorded by the 1890 census, the states of the former Confederate South registered the strongest concentration of any religion anywhere in the country. With the exception of Louisiana with its Catholic communities, the religious affiliations of the other 10 states recorded extraordinary majorities for the Methodists and Baptists, who might have fought each other like cats and dogs, but only as an expression of what Freud had called the narcissism of small difference. Thus, in 1890, Methodists and Baptists made up over 90% of the church population in Georgia and Mississippi, and over 70% in the other eight former Confederate states. The religious transformation brought on by the Civil War actually solidified the place of more or less sectarian evangelical religion in these states, even as it diffused evangelical in influence in the nation as a whole. The effects on political life were considerable, especially in the South, where the white churches played such an important role in throwing over Reconstruction, but where the black churches would later play such an important part in throwing over Jim Crow. Um, there were, of course, a number of political uh, results coming from the combination of religious and racial concerns, and I'd like to go through these fairly rapidly because they're well known from uh, your, your understanding of American history. The redemption of the South meant a, a functional um, um, repeal of the 14th and 15th Amendments. States did, in fact, abridge the rights of their citizens. Uh, citizens were, in fact, prevented from voting. Um, voting, voting turnout as a percentage of, of, of national turnout for most of the states in the United States in this period was 80 to 120 percent. So most states were either a little bit below the national average or a little bit above the national average. Even the former slave states that had been in the Union were roughly at the national average of voter turnout. But by 1920, voter turnout in most of the uh, former slave states had fallen to uh, one-third to two-fifths of the turnout of the nation. And in Alabama, sorry, in Georgia, Mississippi, and South Carolina, voter turnout was less than one-fifth of the national average. So uh, not only did uh, um, redemption violate the Constitution, but it also killed democracy. Second effect was to reshape uh, uh, national electoral politics. And here I need to refer you to the graph on the back side of your uh, outline today. I'll say just a, I tried to explain this last night, probably didn't do it well enough. The ratio on the, the left hand side is the ratio of a state's democratic percentage 
vote for president over the national percentage of Democratic vote for president. So when you see, uh, uh, I think I've got Alabama and South Carolina and Florida, when you see those light-colored lines way above the line, that means percentage vote totals for the Democratic candidate much higher than national totals. You see Massachusetts and Rhode Island, the darker colors, quite a bit below the line. That means consistently Republican percentages for uh, in state totals for the presidential vote much higher than, than the national uh, average. Um, what the graph indicates is that once the, the conflicts of Reconstruction are over, the South became a solidly Democratic enclave. The Democratic nominee for president started out with half the electoral votes needed for election. And of course, the Republican candidate started out with all the electoral votes in states that were nervous about the, the, the Democratic lock on the South. But there was a greater uh, a political effect, it seems to me, than even this regional division of the country. And, and that was the effect of the retreat from Reconstruction on the use of national power. I'm going to say this next sentence twice because it's, it's the only thing I think I've come up with, although other people have, have said it before. For, for decades in this period, expansion of central government authority on any question was checked by resistance to central government authority on all racial questions. Expansion of central government authority on any question was checked by resistance to central government authority on all racial questions. So, for example, again, the example uh, Brian is a good example. Brian actually, left to himself, wanted a bigger national government. But even more than a bigger national government, William Jennings Bryan wanted to be president. And as a Democratic nominee, he had to have the electoral support of the formerly Confederate South. And therefore, even someone who wanted to have an expansion of the federal government could not expand the federal government against the wishes of those who controlled the states that feared the expansion of the federal government as potentially disturbing the racial regimes that had been established with redemption. The effects of this cramped political position were twofold. First, racist convictions successfully dictated national actions or the absence of national actions. Second, racist convictions successfully preempted a general debate on whether and how national government power should be used. So long as the racist regimes buttressed by Jim Crow laws prevailed, few such debates took place. When in the 1850s and 60s, sorry, when in the 1950s and 60s, civil rights reform finally broke through and restarted the debate on the use of natural government central government authority, the discussion that resulted continued to bear the impress of this long history. I'm going to skip this section for implications. Of course, wonderfully interesting stuff, but it's too, too complicated to, to go into. Let me then say just a word or two of conclusion. The religious, racial, political effects of the Civil War were extremely far-reaching. It was especially important that central government authority su succeeded in reuniting the country and in making slavery illegal, but that it failed to dislodge systemic racial discrimination. Only a massive federal presence maintained vigilantly for a long time might have rooted black political participation 
and black legal equality deeply enough to withstand the tempest of reaction. As in, in the event, the tempest, which in some parts of the country were very intense, won out over central government actions, after which central government inaction facilitated the process by which racial discrimination and racial prejudice, even in the absence of slavery, worsened from the 1870s for more than the ha next half century. The failure of the central government to move effectively against racial discrimination was not exactly caused by the failures of antebellum evangelical religion during and after the Civil War, but that those weaknesses of antebellum evangelical religion were everywhere factors for the weakening of central government action during Reconstruction and its caving in to the so-called redemption of a white racist South. That result was everywhere a factor in the retreat of the national religious bodies from advocacy on behalf of African Americans. But then also, and it's the topic which I'll begin with uh, tomorrow night, but also, also, when the hegemony of white evangelical Protestants gave way, it helped create enough free space for a distinctly African-American form of experiential, quasi-evangelical, universal, and reforming Christianity to get up from its bed and walk. You were saying that the political decline of evangelicalism opened up new space for other groups to be considered Americans. But in my own research, looking at home missions movements from you know, 1880s to 1920s, Americanization and Protestantization seem to sort of be synonymous terms. So I'm just wondering, oh, and th that's sort of backed up by the federal government and Indian policy and some other things. So I'm wondering, right. considered American by who? Right. Uh, very nice question. Um, what I tried to uh, say was that the, the change uh, precipitated by the Civil War was in the national uh, direction of political life by these evangelical groups. Now, the, 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 the case of uh, Indian activity is, is a good counterexample. Uh, the comparative uh, issue, which I, I think I mentioned very briefly in the talk, was to take, for example, the uh, American Party of the 1850s and to see that its blatantly anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant position led not just to a, uh, a voluntary movement, not just to uh, the kind of Americanization equals Protestantization that you referred to, which of course continued, may continue, continue still to this day in some parts of the, the land, but, but led actually to a, a, to a political payoff in the election of the entire Massachusetts state legislature, I think half the Connecticut one, 30 or 40 representatives to the National Congress. Had there not been the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, there may have been a know-nothing presidential candidate who, got, who came close to winning the election in 1860. And there was nothing like that, even, even from the American Protective Association, even from Josiah Strong. Uh, although more evidence in, in your and the weight of your question comes from the really fine scholarship of Gaines Foster on the efforts to Christianize America after the uh, Civil War, which, which included 
serious proposals that actually were brought up in Congress, never, I don't think, passed, to amend the Constitution to make sure to put Jesus, God, and the Bible in the preamble of the Constitution, which were, of course, very seriously Protestant enterprises. Uh, still, comparatively speaking, um, uh, the Catholic Church uh, doesn't care what Josiah Strong is doing in Chicago, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Louisville, Baltimore. Uh, the, the Mormons in Utah only begin to care about that sort of thing when they apply for statehood and want to get their senators uh, situated. The uh, Lutherans, they could care less up there in Minnesota. So, yes, a very nice point, um, but as I keep worrying about, this is supposed to be a short history, and short histories just are death on nuance. The timing of the Civil War puts it roughly right in the middle of the 19th century shift from an agrarian to an industrial society. In the face of the growth of industrialism, at the same time that the agrarian, the remainder of the economy that's agrarian shifts heavily towards grain crops, the South becomes an economic backwater. How much of what you've described is driven by the fact that this entire region becomes almost a, uh, an afterthought for the Colony. rest of the country? Yeah. That's an ex excellent question. And again, were this a full history rather than a short history, the connections between economics and religion would have to, have to come uh, fully into play. Um, However, I, th I think what I would say is, is that um, the kind of, of creativity that was seen in, in uh, several, several sorts of religious or quasi-religious efforts to um, take the measure of agriculture and beginning industrialization in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s did, didn't exist after the war. So you, a lot can be said against, for example, the, the, mill, the mill towns that were created in, in New England by self-consciously religious congregational exploiters of women and children workers. But as they exploited, they also nurtured. And th these were, uh, New Lanark in Scotland was a model for community support as well as industrial exploitation. But it was, it was industrialization on a small scale. After the war, church people come to Carnegie and Vanderbilt asking for money, not, not to give them guidance. And I think it's the same for the southern economy. Uh, part, part of the resentment of the north in the white south was of all, all the uh, patronization that people felt from scallywags and other northern uh, voluntarists who were, who were trying to remodel uh, southern society. Uh, part of the resentment was felt at making African Americans economically viable as, as self-sustaining self uh, individuals. I, I, I don't know enough about the economics of, of regional development in the last third of the 19th century, but certainly Resentment at what the North was trying to do to incorporate the South into the national economic system was part of the resentment that, that fueled the, uh, the, the, the racist regimes and the, quote, redemption of the South. 
economics is always a religious subject and vice versa in, 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 in American history, any history, and I'm, I'm sure there are more connections than I can put my finger on, but it's a good question to, 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 to draw attention to the fact that what I've described as a religious and political development was an economic development as well. very much for your presentation. I was wondering what happens when you bring empire in. I was intrigued by your claim about uh, central government being resisted when it comes to protecting rights for blacks and so forth. And yet at the same time, you've got six million peoples of color who are being subsumed under U.S. aegis, as it were, in Guam, Hawaii, Cuba, and so forth and so on. So it looks as if you've got economic interests and white supremacy allowing the central government to be very activistic when it comes over when it comes to overseas expansionism and yet at the same time you've got white supremacy and economic interests curtailing the central government being active in regard to protecting the rights of black folk and others. What happens when empire comes in given the fact that this is the age of imperialism? Yeah. Well empire is a, a very interesting theme in this uh, last third of the 19th century. I'm Maybe I'm bending over backwards to be uh, defensive, but I, I don't see empire exerted by the United States in, in this uh, period as suffering from some of the same some of the problems that emerged in the 20th century, and for a number of reasons. One reason is that uh, the world's greatest imperial power during this period was still the United Kingdom, and as uh, really remarkable. Uh, set of works by people like Andrew Porter have shown um, empire British Empire combined uh, callousness toward lower orders with remarkable altruism toward lower orders I think of the missionary movement which can certainly be criticized for all sorts of imperial problems but which also in the mid to at least toward the end of the 19th century, included a full and meaningful application of Henry Venn's principles of self-propagation, self-determination, self-funding, and then the Nevius principles, John Nevius, that the, and the Nevius-Venn principles, I think, were, were actually an empowering kind of imperialism that survived in some parts of the world close to the, to the turn of, of, the, uh, of the 20th century or beyond. What I think, where, where I think that, that pointing to empire is very important, and, and because it supports, of course, my thesis tonight, is in the effect of thinking of the United States, North and South now rejoined, thinking of the United States as having a divine mandate in the world. Um, uh, Horace Bushnell, for example, preached a famous sermon at the Yale uh, um, commencement in 1865 about the United States now becoming providential through the sacrifice of blood. And he lived long enough to become a, a kind of promoter of, of the reuniting of the North and the South in order to fulfill the God-given destiny in the world by the United States. My reading of that trope is that most humans can only sustain one or one and a half overpowering biblical tropes at one time. 
And, and when you've got the trope of a, of a nation redeemed by blood sacrifice, which of course must be south as well as north, acting then as God's agent in the world, there's, no, there's hardly any room at all for the trope of God made all people of one blood. Last night I mentioned that during the election campaign of 1900, William Jennings Bryan did actually pass on, he didn't exactly endorse it, but he passed on uh, a, a pamphlet done by a, an African-American organization uh, supporting the rights of Filipinos and saying, in effect, we know what it's been like to be subjugated by the United States of America, and we sympathize with you Filipinos, which, which would be an incident supporting your question. I want to hold out a little bit of uh, sympathy for the, um, the honesty and the altruistic intentions of someone like the Bible reading William McKinley, who, in a phrase that's been widely lapooned, said that he was going into the Philippines to help our little brown brothers. Today, you couldn't get away with that and shouldn't get away with that. In 1897, that might have been not such a bad, relatively speaking, uh, platform, especially if the competing motive for Western expansion was a scientific polygenetic theory that treated the Filipinos not as little brown brothers, but as a different species of, of, of animal altogether. So again, as with the question of Protestantization, relatively speaking, I don't think we have in this period um, some, some of the uh, gross uh, problems of imperialism. And we have, I think, some of the more altruistic, some of the more universal Christian counter moves by what, what would today be recognized as the more enlightened elements of, of, the, uh, of the missionary movement. Well, because of the hour, uh, I think maybe we should bring in... Uh, Can we take one more here? Yeah. Of course, one more question. I think we have a microphone coming. Yeah, I think we're good. I'm not one to speak so obscurely. Um, do you believe that um, our country's political duress is due to right now, the political duress right now, is due to race, um, especially that of the terrorizing of African, the African-American people, um, speaking religiously, of course. Yeah. Do I believe that, the, yeah, contemporary, well, that's a wonderful last question because I can say, come back tomorrow for, for the last, <laughs> um, and I'm an academic, you know, so I'll say yes and no. Thank you. <laughs>